We live in a wonderful place and time in human history. We are living in a time when advances in medicine and technology make surviving in life and living life much less difficult than it has ever been. For example, not too many years ago, people died from things that can be cured with a little pill or a simple shot today. And there are still many people who die from such things in lots of places around the world. So we live in a unique place and a unique time with many advantages as compared to people who lived decades ago or who live in other places around the world. To say it another way, we have many blessings and many benefits that other people have not had or presently do not have. And we should be thankful for those things with a heart of appreciation. However, there is a downside to the lifestyle that we enjoy today, and that is the tendency to get very comfortable with life here on planet Earth. It's very easy to become focused and fixated on the here and now. That's not healthy for us as God's people. That's not healthy for us, those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity by nature is future-oriented. That's one of the reasons why the kind of Christian life Paul lived, as described in Philippians 3, is not appealing to many Christians today. Let's turn to that passage by way of introduction this morning. Please turn with me to Paul's letter to the church at Philippi called Philippians. After the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we have Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Notice how Paul described the way he lived the Christian life beginning in verse 12. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, But I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here in this passage, Paul explains that he realized he knew he could never attain to perfection in this life. But that didn't deter him from pressing on. He was motivated because he knew that one day he would reach the goal, which is Christ's likeness, and God would give him the prize, which is Christ's likeness. The goal and the prize are one and the same. Paul pursued that tirelessly, even though he knew he would never attain it in this life until the Lord Jesus returns to this earth. Frankly, I think it's almost impossible for us to relate to this description here in Philippians 3. Whoever hears of someone tirelessly pursuing something he knows he can't attain in this life, Sadly, that kind of thinking is rare in our Christian world or Christian culture today. 
And one of the reasons why is because we live in a world of instant gratification. If you can't get it or have it right away, rare is the person who is willing to hold on and wait for the thing, whatever it is. Whoever hears of delayed gratification today? If you want something, you get it. There's always some way you can charge it or finance it long term. That kind of mentality and mindset and lifestyle are devastating to our Christian walk for several reasons, not the least of which is the fact that we are to diligently pursue a prize that we're not going to get until we get to heaven. As I said a moment ago, Christianity is by nature future-oriented. Paul understood that. So he tirelessly pursued the goal and the prize. What kept him motivated? He knew that one day he would attain it when the Lord Jesus returns. That's what he mentions down in verse 20 of this third chapter of Philippians. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is there. Our Savior is there. Our inheritance is there. Our reward is there. Our destiny is there. Our citizenship is in heaven. We need to remember that, beloved. This world is not our home. We are only passing through. Paul was not the only writer of the New Testament to emphasize this important truth. So did the Apostle Peter. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, over near the end of our New Testaments. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the letter that we have been studying in recent weeks. And so we turn there again this morning. And I invite you to follow along as I read verses 9 through 12, though our text will primarily consist of verses 11 and 12. But beginning in verse 9, as we saw last week, Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. In Luke 12, 48, Jesus made a penetrating statement that ought to be riveted into each of our minds. He said this, To whom much is given, from him much will be required. In other words, with great privilege comes great responsibility. That's exactly what we see in this passage before us. In verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Peter delineates some of the privileges we have as members of the family of God. We have been blessed beyond comprehension by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. With those immense privileges comes a serious responsibility. 
That responsibility is mentioned at the end of verse 9, where Peter says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To say it another way, our lives should declare the manifold excellencies of Christ our Savior. That one statement at the end of verse 9 is further expanded in verses 11 and 12, which are the verses we want to look at this morning, where Peter reminds us that those of us who have been transformed and brought into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ have the responsibility to live a changed life before a lost and dying world. This is a common theme in the pages of the New Testament. For example, just by way of introduction into this text, go back with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We were in Philippians a moment ago. The letter just prior to it is Ephesians. Look at Ephesians, chapter 4. If you have ever studied the book of Ephesians, then you know that chapter 4 is a major turning point in the letter. That is the case because for three chapters, Paul pours out his heart teaching some very critical, very vital truths concerning our position in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 8, Paul calls these truths the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because we are in Christ, because we are united to him by faith, because we are joined to him, we are extremely wealthy spiritually. In fact, the key word for the first three chapters of this letter is the word wealth. Chapter 1, verse 7 speaks of the riches of his grace. Chapter 1, verse 18 speaks of the riches of his inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 4 speaks of the riches of his mercy. Chapter 2, verse 7 speaks of the riches of his grace. Chapter 3, verse 16 speaks of the riches of his glory. All of, the, all of these riches are ours in Christ. That is, all of this belongs to us by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. So the key word of chapters 1 through 3 is wealth. And the key word of chapters 4 through 6 is walk. Chapter 4 verse 1 speaks of a worthy walk. Chapter 4 verse 17 speaks of a futile walk. Chapter 5, verse 2 speaks of a loving walk. Chapter 5, verse 8 speaks of an enlightened walk. Chapter 5, verse 15 speaks of a wisdom walk. So, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, our wealth. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, our walk. That's the way the book of Ephesians unfolds. By the way, this pattern of teaching is very common with the Apostle Paul. He often goes from doctrine to duty, from precept to principle, from theology to life, from position to practice. The two are inseparably linked together in life. There can be no lifestyle, no proper lasting lifestyle, unless there is good theology at the bottom of it. And that's why Paul follows this pattern of instruction before exhortation. Paul spends three chapters of Ephesians instructing before he spends the last three chapters exhorting. And that is why I said that chapter 4 is a major turning point in this letter. 
Chapter 4, verse 1 sums up the first three chapters with just one statement. Or maybe a better way to say it is based on the teaching of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Verse 1 of chapter 4 gives us a single statement response to all that is in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And here is the single statement response. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, exhort you, encourage you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. The word walk here in this verse means daily conduct. And throughout the New Testament it is used to speak of lifestyle. So you could really paraphrase this, live a life worthy of your calling. That's what Paul is saying here. Live a changed life. If you are a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ, live a changed life. The word worthy here in this verse literally means to balance the scales. And the picture is of an ancient scale which had a basket on both sides so that you could balance things out for weight. So basically, with that word picture, Paul is saying, place your riches in Christ on one side of the scale and your daily life on the other side of the scale and make sure that they equal each other. Make sure they balance out. I want you to notice how Paul refers to himself here in verse 1. He refers to himself as the prisoner of the Lord. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul's imprisonment was because of his faithfulness to the Lord. Now, we know that. We understand that. But it begs the question, why does he bring it up here? What does it add to this statement? And I think the answer is this. Paul brings it up at this point because it's a way of saying, no matter what it costs, walk worthy. It costs me my freedom, is basically what Paul is saying. But it's worth it. Walk worthy. Live a changed life. Here in this verse, the Holy Spirit is earnestly pleading with us to walk worthy of our calling. Beloved, The thing that matters most from the moment you become a Christian until the moment you die is that you walk worthy. There's a sense in which it doesn't really matter if you make a lot of money or dress nice or have a nice house or a nice car or if you get promotions. There's a sense in which it doesn't really matter what your profession is or how many honors you get. The thing that matters most is that you walk worthy. That's how Paul opens this chapter. Skip down to verse 17 of the same chapter. As he continues to elaborate on this idea, this theme, he says in verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. When Paul uses the term Gentiles here in this verse, he's not simply referring to non-Jewish people. He is using the term as it was often used in the first century to refer to people who don't know God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 speaks of the Gentiles who do not know God. So what Paul is basically saying here in verse 17 is this. If we want to paraphrase it, put it in our everyday language. Don't walk or don't live like people who don't know God. If you know God, why would you live as people who don't know Him? Christians have no business living just like unsaved people live. What a terrible advertisement for Christ. What a terrible uh, advertisement 
for his power to say it makes no difference in our lives. 1 Peter 4.3 says we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in licentiousness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. We've spent enough time living like that. And that's why here in verse 17, Paul says, don't walk that way anymore. Don't live like that. Don't live like people who don't know God. Don't walk that way. Don't walk the same way unsaved people walk. How do unsaved people walk? Well, the end of verse 17 says, in the futility of their mind. That's the ultimate. That is the ultimate for unsaved people, their mind, their opinion, their viewpoint. They, they couldn't care less about God's mind or God's opinion or God's perspective. They don't take the time to see what God has to say in his word about how to live. So their mind is their master. But God says their mind is futile. It's futile because they reject God's truth. And what is more important than God's truth? Everything else in life is useless without God's truth. Now, don't misunderstand this statement. This does not mean that, that, that non-Christians, unsaved people, don't know anything. There are some very, you know, that there are some very intelligent non-Christian people, highly educated non-Christian people. 2 Timothy 3.7 says men are ever learning, but it doesn't stop there, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, uh, non-Christians can know a lot of things. But it's all futile and empty without knowing God. As Lenski put it, I quote, What a picture. What a description. Men with thinking, willing minds, rational creatures, walking and walking on and on throughout life, following the dictates of a mind that leads them at every step and at the end to nothing to monumental, tragic failure, end quote. And that's where it will lead. Again, it doesn't matter how highly educated a person is, how intelligent, how, how high of an IQ. In the end, that's going to be, mean nothing when that person stands before God. It will mean absolutely nothing. If anything, it will be a bad thing because there is a greater accountability. So Paul says here, don't live like people who don't know God. What a, what a tragedy it is when God's people le- live the same way. Down in verse 20 of this same chapter, Paul says, But you have not so learned Christ. In other words, you, you've not learned from Christ to live the way unsaved people live. You've not learned that from him. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Paul says, put off the deeds of your old life. You're new now that you're in Christ. Live accordingly. Don't live the way you used to live before you knew Christ. After all, the end of the verse says that those things are deceitful lusts. What does that mean? They are deceitful in that they promise fulfillment and contentment but they only deliver emptiness and death. What a vivid description. 
So many people in our society, so many people in our world are chasing a dream. They're chasing a fantasy, going from one relationship to another, one experience to another, looking for fulfillment, looking for contentment. But it's deceitful, this verse says. Because it promises those things, promises fulfillment, promises contentment, but in the end it's empty. It's death. So Paul says to us here as believers, throw away all those old practices. And verse 23 says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Think differently now that you're a believer. Think properly. Think biblically. And then in verses 25 through 32 of this chapter, Paul mentions some specific aspects of our lives that ought to be different if we belong to Christ. He gives us five specific exhortations that we as Christians are to carry out. Each one of the exhortations involves an exchange or a trade that we are to make. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 25, we are to trade lying for honesty. Verse 25, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Verses 26 and 27, we are to trade sinful anger for righteous anger. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in wrath, nor give place to the devil. Trade sinful anger for righteous anger. Verse 28, trade stealing for giving. Verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working in his hands what is good, that he may have something to give. We trade stealing for giving. Verses 29 and 30, we are to trade rotten talk for edifying words. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. We trade rotten talk for edifying words. And then finally, the final exchange in this passage, verses 31 and 32, we are to trade sinful qualities for Christ-like virtues. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, loud quarreling and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted forgiving one another. That is trading sinful qualities for Christ-like virtues. Beloved, that's the exchanged life right there. Right there before you. Verses 25 through 32, the exchanged life. That's living a changed life. And I guarantee you that if those of us who know Christ, all of, if all of us who know Christ live that way, the impact on others around us would be astounding. Listen to this quote. If we were a community of people who never lied but always spoke the truth, who never got angry in a sinful way but always acted in love, who never stole but always shared, who never spoke with filthy communication but always ministered grace to those listening, who never had bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, or evil speaking but were always characterized by kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness, do you think the world would take note of our message? I think they would, end quote. You see, beloved, that is our responsibility as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what Peter says to us in a different way in our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. So with all this as background, let's go back there to our text in 1 Peter chapter 2. Here in verses 11 and 12, Peter reminds us that those of us who have been transformed 
by the grace of Christ, those of us who have been brought into the family of God through faith in Christ, have the responsibility to live a changed life before a lost and dying world. God has changed us, so we should live a changed life. To illustrate this point, think with me about John 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Most of you are familiar with that story. According to the text, Lazarus had been dead for four days. The process of decay had already started. After praying to the Father, Jesus stood before the tomb and he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. It's fascinating to realize that literally Jesus simply used two adverbs to call Lazarus forth from the grave. The literal translation of Jesus' statement is this. Lazarus, here, outside. That's what Jesus said. Lazarus, here, outside. And with that, Lazarus was infused with new life. Someone has said that if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, then probably every grave on the earth would have been open. So Jesus specified Lazarus. Then when Jesus spoke those words, John eleven forty four says, And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. That is, a, that is such a beautiful illustration of what happens to us spiritually. Ephesians 2, 1 says, We were dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead. Just like Lazarus was dead physically, we were spiritually dead. We couldn't respond to spiritual stimuli. We couldn't respond to the Word of God. We couldn't respond to the Spirit of God. We couldn't respond to the things of God. The process of decay caused by sin was at full strength in us spiritually, but God called us forth from the grave. He called us forth from spiritual deadness, and He gave us new life in Christ. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And now that we have been infused with resurrection life, the first thing that needs to be done is to get rid of the old grave clothes. Get rid of that stuff. We're no longer dead spiritually if we are joined to Christ, so we have no business wearing around our old spiritual grave clothes. Or to say it another way, we have no business living like we used to live. We have no business imitating the dead. That's basically what Peter says here in these two brief verses. Let's look at them. Verse 11. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The first thing I want you to notice in this verse is Peter's passion as he gives this exhortation. He says, Beloved, I beg you or I urge you Peter was a shepherd. He had shepherded people for many years, and he had seen the devastation that can be caused in Christians' lives who don't take seriously the importance of abstaining from things that are damaging to our souls. I hope you realize, I hope you know, that a true Christian can digress severely by giving in to sinful impulses and sinful tendencies. In fact, in Peter's second letter, 2 Peter, he opens by exhorting the believers to grow in their faith, and he warns that those who do not can even get to the point where they are blind spiritually. 2 Peter 1.9 says, For he who lacks these things... 
these virtues of growth, is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. That's how bad it can get for a Christian who doesn't abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. So Peter gives us that exhortation here in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. To motivate us, Peter appeals to us as sojourners and pilgrims. That's a reminder to us that this world is not our home and we're only passing through. This life is temporary. And therefore, we don't want to give in to things that may bring temporary pleasure but have negative consequences spiritually. Remember, beloved, we are in a battle. That's the terminology that Peter uses here. Notice it. That's the imagery. He talks about waging war. Listen, you may not realize you're in a battle as a Christian, but let me assure you of something. The enemy of our souls knows that we are in a war. You may not realize it. I may not realize it, but he does. And he is serious about it. If you belong to Christ, the enemy of our soul knows that he can't affect your eternal destiny because that is sure in Christ. So he wants to cause as much damage in your life as he can. If he can, and if you allow him, he will ruin your life and or your testimony for Christ. If he can't ruin those things completely, he will cause as much damage as he can. That's his goal. That is his goal. And he uses our own fleshly tendencies in an attempt to accomplish that goal. That's why we need to have a wartime mentality as we live life. Consider your life for just a moment. Your mindset, I'm I'm speaking of specifically. Consider your mindset for just a moment. Think about how you think. Can you honestly say this morning that you have a wartime mentality and approach to life, spiritually speaking? Let me ask you that again. Can you honestly say that you have a wartime mentality and approach to life, spiritually speaking? We should. All of us should. Do you take seriously the fact that you are in a war for the spiritual well-being of your soul? This is Peter's exhortation here in verse 11. And he elaborates on it in the next verse. He says in verse 12, Having your conduct honorable. Some translations, excellent. Having your conduct honorable or excellent among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Beloved, people are watching your life. Don't ever forget that, and don't ever underestimate that reality. Whether it's people right in your own home, in your own family, in your neighborhood, in your school, on your team, at work, in your classes, wherever people are watching your life. People in your life who don't know the Lord are looking. They may not ever tell you that they are watching you, but they are watching you. 
They observe how you live. They take note of how you speak, how you act, how you react to things in life. Peter understood that, which is one of the reasons why he gave us this exhortation here in verse 12, to keep our conduct excellent among the Gentiles. When Peter uses the word Gentiles here in this verse, he is not, again, merely referring to non-Jews. It's the same thing we saw from Paul in Ephesians. He is referring to people who don't know the Lord, and that is most of the people around us in life, in society. Most people in our world, in our society, don't know the Lord. But they watch those of us who do claim that we know the Lord. If they know that is what we claim, that we are followers of Christ, that we know the Lord, they watch. And frankly, some of them watch us to try to find something to accuse. Not all, but some. In other words, they are looking for inconsistencies. To say it another way, they're looking for hypocrisy. You see, even though it may not be a conscious or deliberate thought, some unbelievers find it easier to soothe their own guilty consciences when they dismiss Christianity by pointing to hypocritical Christians. Surely you know what I'm talking about. They want to be able to speak against Christians or people against people who claim to be Christians. And if they can find Christians or people who claim to be Christians who are hypocritical and inconsistent, then it's sort of like it takes the pressure of, oh yeah, that's, that's a Christian. That's Christianity. And it just sort of, in their own minds, lets them off the hook. Well, yeah, I don't need to bother with that stuff because, look, that's the way Christians, look at those Christians. That's why Peter mentions this point here in verse 12. He says that our good works or our good character should counter any charges of being an evildoer. In fact, he says that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what does Peter mean by that phrase? There are two possibilities, and both of them may be true. Let's break that down. The the phrase day of visitation is used in the Old and New Testament to refer to a time when God would draw near in judgment or redemption. And that's what makes it difficult to know exactly which one Peter has in mind because this phrase is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament both ways. To a time when God draws near, day of visitation, God's visiting, a time when God would draw near in judgment or redemption. So, Peter could be saying that when God draws near an unbeliever for redemptive purposes, our testimony may be used by God to draw that person to salvation and cause him to glorify God. In other words, God may choose to use us, our example, our testimony, to win someone else to Jesus Christ. So that's one possible way that Peter is using the phrase. He is saying, keep your conduct excellent so that when God draws near, God begins to work in the life of an unbeliever, God can use you, your example, to be part of that which draws that person to faith in Christ. The other option is that Peter is saying that when God draws near the unrepentant unbeliever in judgment someday, that person will have to acknowledge the truth about Christians and give glory to God in judgment. 
In other words, again, he may be saying that the day when God draws near in judgment, he will silence the accusations of unbelievers when they say, well, I, I didn't, I'm not really responsible to believe because look at all the terrible examples I had of Christians. And that would be a way of they have to glorify God by acknowledging the truth and give glory to God in judgment. Now, both of those are valid interpretations of this phrase. And it's possible that Peter has both in mind in his statement, since this phrase is used both ways in Old Testament and New Testament. But regardless of which way you go with that, the point is clear. Here's the point. We ought to live changed lives before people who don't know Christ so that God will be glorified. God is glorified when our testimony for Christ is used to draw unbelievers to salvation. And God will be glorified when unbelievers have to admit in judgment that God's people have lived honorable lives. Regardless of which way it goes, the point is we are responsible to live changed lives. Being in the family of God is an immense privilege. Belonging to Jesus Christ by faith is an immense privilege. We didn't get this privilege by our own doing. We didn't get this because of anything in us. The last phrase in verse 10 tells us it's because we received mercy. By God's mercy, we have the privilege of being in his family. As Peter says in verse 9, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special people. With that privilege, beloved, comes the responsibility to set forth the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I ask you this morning, if you're a Christian or you claim to be a Christian, here's the question, how are you doing? And when I ask that question, I'm not asking it as a nicety, you know, like, how's it going? How are you doing? What does your life say? How are you doing in this regard? And remember, please remember, people can't hear what we are saying when our actions contradict our words. And so here we are called by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Peter to represent Jesus Christ properly. Represent Him to those around us who do not know him. That's our calling. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes so you're not distracted by any movement, please take just a couple minutes to think about what you have heard this morning from God's word, what you have seen with your own eyes in God's word. Now the message this morning obviously was directed toward Christians. It was directed toward people who know Christ or people who claim to know Christ. So if you're here today and you're not in that category, that is, you, you're not a Christian, you know you're not, you say, I, I, I'm not, I don't know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior, then the message for you isn't really the message that we focused on this morning. The message for you is that God has extended mercy to you. God offers mercy. We all deserve judgment. We, we're, we're sinners and we deserve, we, we deserve damnation, condemnation. But God extends mercy. He extends mercy to those who will surrender to Jesus Christ. 
to those who will submit to him, to those who will receive him. So if you're here today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the message to you today is to receive God's mercy. Right now, right this moment, right there where you are seated, if the Spirit of God has spurred your uh, heart and and really uh, worked in your heart and you you say, "I, I want to be a child of God, I want to be in the family of God, then tell the Lord that. You don't have to pray it out loud. The Lord knows what you're thinking right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want your forgiveness. I want your salvation. Come into my life and change me. Cleanse me. Take me. Begin making me the man or the woman you want me to be. That's the message for you today if you're here without Christ. But if you today are one who claims to know Christ, if you are a Christian or you make that claim, then you see very clearly the responsibility that is ours. It's true whether we're looking at Philippians or Ephesians or 1 Peter. It's it's throughout the New Testament. If we claim to know Christ, this is the way we're supposed to live. We're to live excellently, honorably, before a lost and dying world. So, Father, that is our prayer. It's, a, it's an immense privilege to call you Father, an immense privilege to be in your family, and with that privilege comes an immense responsibility. May we hear that message clearly. May we take heed to it. May we take it to heart so that we would live the way that you want us to live, live properly with the realization that people do watch us. They do watch how we live, what we say, how we act, react, speak. So may we live Christ before a lost and dying world. And Father, in closing, we want to pray for anyone who is here with us this morning who cannot really call you Father, who who is not a, a child of yours through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit be pleased to work in that man's or woman's or young person's heart, whoever it is, to give them clear understanding of what it means to know Jesus Christ personally as Lord and Savior. And may this be the day that he or she turns to him in simple, humble, childlike faith. For we pray these things in his precious and wonderful name. Amen.